Hey, Jim. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Ralph. Hey, and welcome to you. <laughs> I welcome you and our listeners to Psychology Takeaway. What do We're, we do? What are we doing here, Ralph? Well, you know, Jim, we've talked in the last uh, number of uh, podcasts uh, about artificial intelligence and its benefits, its dangers, its strangeness, but we have missed one critical thing. What's that? We have missed human intelligence. Do you think that exists? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, it probably does. It's uh... maybe not in Washington, but uh, <laughs> perhaps elsewhere. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, it wasn't until really the dawn of uh, uh, schooling, public schooling, that uh, we took much real note of intelligence. And it wasn't here in America, it was in France, where yeah. the, the first IQ tests, uh, as we know them today, were developed. Well, one of the things that we can pretty much be sure of, Jim, is that before uh, the, the dawn of, um, what should we call it, schooling of various kinds, uh, most people became whatever their parents were. Uh, so if yeah. your father was a farmer, you became a farmer. If he was a blacksmith, you became a blacksmith. Okay. And, you know, uh, whether you were... A true product quote, of your environment. Yeah, whether you were, quote, smart or dumb, it didn't really matter because if you were going to be a farmer, that's what you were going to be. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, today, if you're a farmer, I understand that the... Uh, 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 genius behind farming requires just about that, right? A genius uh, kind of Well, you know, we, we tend to kind of, uh, I don't know if I should say we, but lots of people in society, uh, particularly on the East and West Coast, sort of look down on farmers as dumb clodhoppers. Uh -huh. Well, the average farmer today uh, has probably two university degrees, one in agricultural science and one in accounting or some sort of office uh, management situation. And they also have about a million dollars worth of equipment. Yeah, right. If and they were in any other profession, we'd be saying, these guys are really smart. Mm -hmm. And uh, of all of the people in the U.S., only the farmer can make food, right? Grow food. Right. Grow food, Well, yeah. I suppose that the folks in the East Coast and the West Coast are trying to grow it in labs now, right? Grow it in labs, make uh, artificial meat substitutes. <laughs> uh, Have you ever tried any of those? I tried one. Uh, I tried a, a non-meat hamburger. Uh, How'd that go? Not well. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. Uh, been there, done that myself. Okay. Well, before we get into trouble with the uh, uh, folks on the East and West Coast, we should you know, introduce Psychology Today, where we try to make sense of uh, some of the things that are happening in the world around us uh, from a psychological point of view. And one of the things that has been a debate for I don't know how long, Ralph, uh, is nature versus nurture. Okay, and so people say sometimes, that guy is just naturally smart. Or that guy has is just naturally dull? Yeah. Okay. Or 
that person who graduated from Yale, Harvard, Duke, take your pick, um, is well-educated and very intelligent. Okay. Now, what's the relationship here between uh, the person graduating from Harvard or Duke and the kid that you talked about who, whose parents were farmers and they're going to be a farmer? Well, perhaps there is no relationship. Perhaps when you go to uh, a good university, you get an education, uh, or you flunk out. Mm -hmm. But you've got to get into the good university. You've got to get into the good university. So would you say that a person who came from a, uh, an enriched background today would have uh, an inordinate uh, uh, leg up on the person who came from a deprived environment? I would say that. If you went to high school, let's say in Detroit or Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, to an ordinary high school, and you applied to Yale, and you were competing against people who had gone to uh, an exclusive residential prep, prep school, school. Yeah, uh, you wouldn't maybe stand much of a chance unless you got in because they wanted diversity. I don't mean racial diversity, but they just wanted somebody who wasn't from uh, a specific kind of level of um, affluence. Or, affluence. Okay. Yeah. So you might get somebody might get in, and uh, the person from the Detroit or Chicago high school may very well do just as well as the person from the prep school, right? They might. Now they would have to perhaps work harder because they might lack. A, a certain background of reading and general knowledge, they probably wouldn't have been taken to good art shows and museums and uh, and read um, quote the canon uh, over the summers uh, when they were off, but they might be uh, just as quote intelligent as any of the other Yale students. Okay, yeah. Um. I went to um, Rutgers for my doctorate. Right. And I was, uh, to say, up against uh, similar people to the ones you're talking about. And I did very well. And did you feel you had to work hard, harder to compete with your uh, schoolmates? Um, to compete with them, no. But to um, satisfy my own urge to excel, I worked hard. Okay, and that could be our mythical high school student from Chicago uh, in Yale. He could say, I am going to excel here no matter what. Yeah, and remember, Ralph, I don't have a high school diploma. <laughs> you are the only PhD I know who does not have a high school diploma. <laughs> well, my colleague... Don, not even Don, a GED. <laughs> I was thinking about getting a GED because apparently I'll make more money. Could be. No, my colleague Don Beer, who moved from Central Michigan University down with his wife down to, I think, Kentucky, he too did not complete high school. Ah. He went from, I think, 11th grade to uh, university. And did well. Yeah. Another person I knew at Michigan State where I got my bachelor's was Mike Grost. Now, Mike was uh, once in uh, Life magazine. Does Life Magazine even exist anymore? 
I don't think so, okay. but I may be wrong. <laughs> he was in Life magazine. He was, when I met him, he was 12. He came to Michigan State uh, as an 11-year-old, and he was taking math. And last time I heard from him, he was, or heard about him, he was at um, um, Northwestern University in, in Chicago. Now, I th believe that both of his parents were professors, and he probably was from a, a very enriched environment, wouldn't you think? I would think. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we, we can maybe say, and I'm not sure that you would accept this as an as a unconditional statement, but uh, generally speaking, people who uh, reach the level of professor uh, are A, smart themselves, and B, know how to provide an enriched environment for their children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that by and large, I would say that's you know true. Um, so I wonder what the real world impact of this is. Can we can we enrich the environment of everybody so that they have uh, a better chance of getting into good schools and doing well? Well, that was a question that was. I think first uh, uh, offered back in 1965 here in the United States with Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. Uh huh. And uh, he uh, uh, proposed universal preschool for right. kids, uh, particularly uh, preschool for children who were uh, economically or socially disadvantaged, right? Right. And you know, one of the things that uh, the, it's funny, the economically lowest level of pay for teachers is preschool teachers. <laughs> right. And the, perhaps it should be the highest level. Yeah, I think uh, the, the psychology prof should probably be making the salary of the preschool teacher and vice versa. Yeah, if we believe that, if we believe that uh, it's really important to have a good preschool environment, then we should be paying, put our money where, you know, that yeah, yeah. statement is. And, you know, there's a call now from uh, presidential um, uh, groups, uh, working group, uh, that said we have to do more for uh, preschool for the disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And I... I am highly in favor of that. Uh, now, I don't know that uh, the current, what we're doing is currently uh, mostly centered around Head Start. Well, yeah. Um, a while ago, we did a podcast on the Perry School Project, remember? Right. Okay, which it came, sort of was a, a precursor to, to Head Start, and I'll put the Perry School Project up on uh, Learn More, just as I'll put up a, uh, uh, a link to the uh, one of the most recent Head Start evaluations. But we have to ask ourselves, well, why did people get the idea that uh, um, achievement could be in some way affected by uh, early enrichment? And to answer that question, we have to go back to adoption studies and to the oh, original study that came out of Michigan here, done by uh, Marie Skells and Robert Skodak. Okay, and they uh, 
they basically um, took a group of people, uh, infants, young people. Who uh, were in the Northville um, training school, so they were identified as mentally handicapped kids. Okay, so there happened to be, uh, what, about 20... 25. 25. 25. Yeah, and the question was, if we enrich some of the kids and just give the other kids the normal environment, the normal institutional environment, would we get a change? Would we see some sort of a change? And so this study, quotation marks around study, because it wasn't a real double-blind research study, uh, took place during the Second World War. And if you think about hospitals during the Second World War, most of our people who had skills were off, you know, providing services to soldiers. So there weren't a lot of uh, uh, enriching type individuals to uh, provide this uh, enrichment. So you know what they did? Well, it sounds to me like you're talking about an adoption study. They no, that, that's the Iowa adoption study. But at the institutional level, here's what they did. They took retarded teenage girls and made them into the surrogate mothers of the 13 kids in the enrichment group. Okay. So, not super enriching, right? Right. Well, the results were pretty amazing. And... The interesting thing is, Ralph, that uh, you know, I got my uh, bachelor's in psychology here at uh, Michigan State, my master's at Central Michigan University, and I never heard of this particular study. But when I got to uh, Rutgers, uh, my fellow students were all excited to talk to me and to learn more about the uh, uh, skills in SCODEC. Uh, institutional uh, study. And you, you were saying, say what? I didn't have a clue, but I did learn about it. And the kids who were in the um, uh, stimulation group or the, the experimental group ended up getting adopted and they, in the follow-up, they ended up with IQ scores that were in the normal range. And some achievement data suggests that their uh, uh, Incomes were at just about the same level as, quotes, normal people. And okay. Like you and I, normal. Normal, yeah. yeah. So okay. so they became indistinguishable from any other functional adult. Right. Uh, right. Now, here, here's the interesting thing, and a lot of you listeners will know this, but if you envision the normal curve, a bell curve, as it's sometimes called, uh, the surrogate enrichers, uh, the, the mothers, if you will, when these kids were uh, still institutionalized, had a measurable intelligence that was below average. Yeah. And the kids ended up, uh, after their, <clears throat> their adoption and yeah, Enrichment growing, and adoption. Yeah. Enrichment and adoption. Yeah. Growing up in a, in a normal home, they ended up about 20 points in terms of measurable intelligence over the people who had first yeah. been their enrichers. Well, or 20 or 30 points above the uh, control group right. that just got the normal institutionalized care. 
And you mentioned adoptive. Uh, there was another study that, uh, and this was more uh, rigorous, that uh, Skells and Skodek did. I think it was in Iowa where they looked at the effects of uh, adoption. Uh, let's see, I think, I believe it was unwed mothers with relatively low IQ scores, around 85 or so, which is you know is a little lower than, than we would hope for. Um, they they were the biological parents, and the kids got adopted, and the kids ended up looking more like their adoptive parents. Their IQ scores were about oh, 20 points or so higher, about 105, 106, 107, something like that. Okay, on on the uh, leading edge of uh, average. Correct. I'm sure that there were some that were higher and probably some that were lower, but yep, yeah, in the average range. So it was uh, uh, anecdotal stuff like this and a little bit of research stuff that uh, uh, led people to believe that early enrichment, uh, giving kids who were in, in poverty situations or disadvantaged situations, to give them some early pushing, you know, early uh, head start, if you would, would actually help with uh, the social and what kind of other kind of problems were we looking at? Back social, then? emotional, uh, yeah. uh, learning to, um, as they say, work and play effectively with others. Okay. Well, the, uh, the effect, I think, was when, when we evaluate Head Start, and I was uh, a lead uh, investigator when I was at Rutgers. They hired a bunch of uh, students in the, in the um, psychology program to go out and, what, what was the name of it? Uh, anyhow, it was a follow-up study. We didn't know what the um, uh, focus of the educational interventions were in the preschools, but... Uh, it was pretty obvious that some of the kids who had been in enriched situations were really doing pretty well, and some kids were not doing so well when compared to, say, uh, children in uh, elementary school. Okay, so the kids who were not doing so well, had they gone through the Head Start type programs? Probably not, but as researchers, we were not told who was in the Head Start and who was in the quotes normal program. Mm -hmm. so but uh, when when I got into uh, the public schools uh, for, with my internship you know it was pretty obvious that some of the kids in it that I had seen in the follow-through were very similar to the children in the upper-class suburb where I was serving my internship as opposed and some of the kids were uh, very similar to children in uh, another school district nearby, not as affluent, and uh, you know, they did not do as well. Yeah, had not had uh, the opportunity for parental enrichment. Right. Now, one of the things, Jim, that, that you told me that I had not realized is uh, the, the story about uh, Frederick II. Yeah. Was it uh, it's in my uh, history of psychology text. Is he 
was it uh, Frederick the Second or Frederick the Great? Or Frederick they, the Great, I think. It I think was. it was. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, we've been talking about what happens when you enrich the environment. You know, okay. Good things happen, but and this is anecdotal. I mean, it was not an experiment, but. He was wondering what would happen if we raised a child in a, a perfect uh, environment in terms of nutrition and, and interaction, but didn't talk to the child, didn't okay. communicate with the child. And you can you can ask, well, you know, why would you do that? Well, we've talked before about the, what happens when you communicate with children. They they pick up our lousy values, right? They do. And so if the kid is the noble savage, right, then mm -hmm. then we should be able to provide all of the physical and, and uh, uh, physiological needs, biological needs, and we don't contaminate the kid with our crazy thoughts. The child should be this, this noble yeah. savage, kind of like Tarzan of the jungle. Yeah. Okay, didn't work that way. Okay, what happened? Kids died. Okay, so if you... Don't verbally simulate a child. Didn't didn't they <laughs> didn't work. They they die. Yeah. As far as we know from that one kind of well, I I am uh, you know anointed by God. I can do anything I want and I'm gonna take these kids and yeah. feed them and uh, you know, mm -hmm. give them good warmth and shelter, but nobody is to talk to them. Right. Okay, so and they didn't do well, but and then you can say, well, you know, maybe that is just the nature of individuals needing that kind of verbal stimulation. But remember when we were in high school, Ralph, we had to read Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah. Okay. Now in that uh, particular story, we had kids from, I would say, an enriched background, good families, good good, yeah. uh, good schools. And uh, what it ha they ended up getting isolated in some way. Was it a plane crash? I think it was a plane crash. Yeah, yeah. And they uh, they ended up uh, basically on uh, the equivalent of a desert island. Yeah, and uh, now in the past we've looked at uh, the Children's Republic here in the, the U.S. and we see the, the kids when they have the guidance of uh, adults, you know, using mm -hmm. adults. As say consultants, do very, very well. They set up a, a democracy, they set up an economic system, um, uh, they set up uh, a, a, what a, an, an enforcement, law enforcement system. How did the kids do in Lord of the Flies? Uh, not so well. Not so well. They went, <laughs> yeah, they, they, uh, they descended into uh, uh, Anarchy, like boom, right? Right, yeah. and uh, you know, part of that, I I think, Jim, and, and uh, maybe maybe I'm stretching it here, but I think that was because you often find in social groupings that one charismatic leader who leads people in a good direction can make an astounding, astounding difference. If the charismatic leader uh, doesn't exist or leads them in a bad direction, uh, then things go to 
Hades in a handbasket. Okay, yeah. And we'll talk about leadership in another podcast series. But we've gone on for about 25 minutes here, Ralph, and that's about five minutes longer than usual. We've looked at uh, some aspects of intelligence and enrichment and deprivation. But let's continue our talk next week. Okay, uh, and in the meantime, uh, let us leave you with this thought. Uh, talk to your kid and read to uh, your kid. So, this is Jim. And Ralph. Saying, keep your stick on the ice. Because we're all in this. Together. together.